Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Chris Williams. Today I'll be delving into the history of monsters in literature and pop culture and what constitutes a real-life monster. In the studio with me today are Fordham University professors Rebecca June and Paul Levinson. Professor June is the visiting assistant professor of medieval studies. Dr. Levinson is a science fiction and the media theory author. So good morning to you both. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Happy to be here. So let me just start out by asking, how do you define a monster? Well, I'll jump in with that. It's something that is different from humanity. And even though it's different, however, it has some kind of relationship to humanity. And it, it really, uh, the notion of monster goes all across the spectrum. You can have a monster that doesn't look anything like a human being, you know, some kind of horrible alien from outer space or Godzilla, a prehistoric monster, which actually I think came from outer space also. And on the other hand, you can have a monster that looks almost completely human but is just uh, someone who does something horrendous like Hannibal Lecter. So it goes all across that spectrum. Yeah, I, I think importantly, a monster always has an element of the unknown. Um, but, be, but a monster is never pure difference, as, as uh, Dr. Levinson said. Otherwise, we would create a category for that thing and, and name it. This is a lion. That's a bear. But if there's some element of, of unknown about that entity, then, then it takes on a monstrous quality. It, it, it's more threatening and more dangerous. You mentioned that there are different types of monsters and that they're unknown. So how can we categorize them, or can we? As far as categories, I don't think that you can really have a definite um, limit to the kinds of monsters there are, because that's what makes them monsters. Well, as I said, once you know what it is, it's no longer a monster. So the monster, by its very nature, is, is this nebulous thing. Um, so it is hard to categorize them. Anything can be a monster. You, you could categorize them, but it's really a weak uh, kind of characterization. There are romantic monsters, for example, like Dracula in some incarnations, in contrast to the Frankenstein monster, who's really not very romantic at all, even in The Bride of Frankenstein. So you might categorize monsters as to how much interaction they have with human beings. Can somebody be married to the monster? You know, that's impossible in terms of Godzilla, but it's not impossible in terms of uh, a vampire. Mm -hmm. So why do we choose to believe in monsters? Is there any benefit? I don't know that we choose to believe. That sounds like everyone uh, makes a very conscious decision. I think it's a much more fundamental part of our psyche. And getting back to what we were just talking about, uh, we can't help but be attracted to things that we don't understand and don't know, but at the same time we sense have some connection to us. Um, I think of it less as a, a choosing to believe in them, uh, more as a choosing to create them. We have need for monsters. They they provide important uh, functions for us. They fill gaps in what we know and understand and then allow us to c control that, that gap to some extent or to um, understand things that we're afraid of and thus control it to an extent. Plus, they, they allow us to create our own identity. If I can turn you into a monster, then I, by contrast, have created myself as the not monster. So they, they provide very important functions, and, and so I think we create them rather than believe in them. 
Yes, and and we and they respond to our needs. I think uh, most human beings would like to live longer than they will live. I don't know if we would really want to live forever, but but death is not a welcome thing in human life, and so we invent various entities, some of whom are monstrous, but what they have in common is they have beaten death in one way or another. There's always a price to pay, but uh, if you're a vampire or, again, Frankenstein monster or any one of the whole series of monsters, you can live much longer than human beings, and that's very attractive to us just in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So are all monsters evil? I don't think that they can be purely evil because then we wouldn't be able to identify with them at all. They would be that pure other. Um, and what makes monsters so attractive is that we do identify with them. Uh, they're incredibly sympathetic. Uh, we, we feel bad for, for King Kong. And, and, and I think partly because uh, human nature fears that we too are monsters that there's that beast within, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that we're all a form of monster in some sense. So they can't be purely evil. They have to be partly human. Rather than being purely evil, some monsters are just misunderstood. Uh, Take Frankenstein, for instance. He's kind of a victim, almost. Well, yeah, that's a good question. The Frankenstein monster, I think, is one of the most uh, popular because, and and part of it is... uh, you know, in terms of the movie, the brain portrayal initially by Boris Karloff. Part of it is what Mary Shelley put into the original novel way back in the early 1800s. But there's sort of uh, an inarticulate uh, desire to be understood and make sense of his, the monster's situation. Because, as you said, I mean, the, the, the Frankenstein monster didn't ask to be created. He was obviously put together by uh, a mad scientist. And that's actually a common uh, theme, uh, the poor, you know, misunderstood monster. And and there's even a a tiny bit of a comic element uh, in that. And that's why a show like The Munsters on television, in a way, is picking up uh, from the Frankenstein motif. You, You wouldn't think that something so horrible, if you think about it, uh, something put together by sewing together various parts of dead bodies could have any humor in it at all. But that also gets to another part of, of human nature. We, we can sometimes laugh at horrendous situations, and that's one of the things that makes us human. Professor June, you teach a class here at Fordham about medieval monsters. So what are some of the first types of monsters that pop up in texts? Uh, they show up really early. Our earliest texts, really, um, the Bible's full of them. <laughs> Giants are particularly popular. Um, hybrid beasts that, uh, like the Leviathan, they're sort of fish-like and beast-like. Um, then you have, in Homer, you've got all the, the monsters in there, that, which is even older uh, in chronological terms. Um, so you've got beasts that, that, as we've said already, have human-like characteristics but they're also uh, animalist, animalistic, and they're and they're also imaginary to some extent. So they're they're, they're very hybrid, um, uh, very hard to define. 
the monster is incredibly difficult to define. <laughs> the biological aspect is 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 very interesting, I think. And when you think about giants being monsters, obviously that gets into something that human beings can be. I mean, we, we can mm-hmm. see very tall human beings. That's what gives uh, rise to it. One last point I'll make about that is now through genetic engineering, we perhaps have the capability in our laboratories to to actually create some of these fictional beasts from the past. And that's an interesting thing to think about, too, because then the imagination of our scientists can, in some sense, come into sync with the imagination of our ancestors. Yeah, I was um, just reading uh, before I came here in the New York Times about Lance Armstrong and all of the, the information that's been presented about him and using steroids, and, and the same discussion is coming up. Should we allow athletes to just go crazy and use steroids and use drugs and become whatever sort of freakish creatures they possibly can for our entertainment? Or, or is that too monstrous? Is that going too far? And, and the word monster was being used to describe Lance Armstrong. Is he a monster? Is he, is he just a victim? And the answer that most people were coming to is, oh, he's human. He's neither. He's really human. Did some people from medieval times believe these monsters actually existed? And if so, why? Wow, it's it's hard to know <laughs> to ever say what people actually believed. Uh, what we can do is look at the the texts and see how they're describing those things, uh, whether you can decide whether they believed them. And so in, for instance, the Liber Monstrorum, the Book of Monsters that's popular in the, in the Middle Ages, you, you have these categories, monsters, beasts, serpents. Um, and so you get the sense that right there, there's a sense of difference between what a monster is and what a beast is. And yet, even within those categories, there's a difference in the way they are, the, these creatures are described. Some of them are described as if they're very factual as, and accepted as truth, while others are, well, people say that these exist. I've heard that these exist. So there's d- definite skepticism about it. Um, so it's, it's always really hard to know uh, what's believed and what isn't and why. You know, is it belief because I've, I've, I trust the person who told me about this because I've actually seen it or because I just want to believe it and I really like this story? Uh, very hard to say. Even today, what, what do people really truly believe in and, uh, and see as monsters and what are they just afraid might, you know, be possible or you're just going along with the crowd? Well, they, they think this happened and everybody else says Lance Armstrong is a monster, so I, I'll go along. How have monsters from medieval text evolved into what we think of as a monster today? Wow. Um, I mean, I think we uh, immediately dragon jumps to mind, which, which, um, which was just mentioned. The dragons in medieval texts are very different, I think, than those that we see on the screen today. Um, they're much more mysterious. Uh, never quite uh, articulated in the way, you know, the, oh, the scales and it, it you know, it, it has wings or whatever. It's always very sh- shadowy. Um, and sometimes, yes, they fly and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they breathe fire and sometimes they don't. So over time, you, you take all the characteristics from all the different texts and, and add them all together and you end up with this conglomeration that we call dragon which may not look much at all like the original dragons in medieval texts. I'm Chris Williams on 90.7 WFUV, speaking with Fordham professors Rebecca June and Paul Levinson about the role of monsters in fiction and real life. 
How have monsters throughout pop culture shaped our conception of what a monster is? Well, you can look at that question in many ways, but one of the most interesting aspects, I think, is the migration of monsters from the page, the written page, to, to the screen. I mean, there, there were monsters on radio, too, but uh, for the most part, uh, the, the monster made a, a big transformation when we saw the first Frankenstein monster stories. This goes back to the 19. 30s, when we saw the first vampire stories, Nosferatu, this goes back to the 1920s and silent movies. And what those movies did, and what movies about monsters and now television shows too continue to do, is they supply us with an image uh, of what the monster looks like and sounds as well, which means we don't rely any more completely on our imaginations. One of the differences between reading something uh, is your mind supplies the image. I often think of like words on a page as instant coffee and our minds pour the hot water over that coffee and then we get a cup of coffee. But when we see something in a movie, the coffee is already there and we, we drink it. So if you think about the vampire, I mean, that's one of the most interesting things because the, the vampire on the screen has evolved from an utterly despicable, frightening, horrendous character, Nosferatu, that no one in her right mind would want to sleep with, to beginning with Frank Langella in the 1960s, to, to actually a somewhat uh, attractive uh, character. And so, again, you, you then get to True Blood where, you know, the, uh, the, the lead vampire is uh, someone that women swoon over. And, and that's a very profound change, and it's all because of, of what the cinema and what images can do. Part of the problem with, with images is that once you do have that image, uh, it is, it, that, be, that monster becomes fixed. Uh, you know, the limits of what it's going to look like, whereas in an oral tale... It, they can create you can create anything in your mind but then once it's fixed it's easier to it, it loses its monstrous uh, powers so you've got to keep making it worse and bigger so you know I, I taught a class on uh, werewolves and we traced images of werewolves over you know a couple of hundred years and they become increasingly macho and increasingly hairy and then they take on glowing eyes and these sort of robotic capabilities just continually escalating the monstrous capabilities of it. Otherwise, it's, it's not scary anymore. Once you put it on a page or put it on a screen, it's, you, ah, that's just my friend, the werewolf. <laughs> so sometimes a monster in pop culture, in a movie or a TV show, they're presented as being morally ambiguous. You're not really sure if you should take their side or is it the other. For example, in the Twilight films, the monsters are the protagonists. So can we talk about how an audience is meant to react to an on-screen monster? Well, first of all, I mean, it depends on who the monster is. Uh, the, the first obligation of a monster story nowadays is to frighten the audience in some way, unless it's a satire, and that's to get the audience to laugh. Uh, there was a great movie in the 1950s called The Tingler, uh, and uh, in, in that movie... Uh, right in the middle of the story, 
no one had noticed there was a string that had been put out from where the screen was over the audience, and they had it arranged so right in the middle of the story, some kind of like small thing uh, made out of paper mache or whatever just glided, uh, you know, on the string. And if you looked up, you'd see this thing over your head. Vincent Price was in that movie. It was another one of his great movies. And that was all the more frightening because you were actually getting this palpable effect of something coming into your space. It was actually coming out of the screen. So I think that that that's the first uh, protocol of, of any monster story. We're supposed to be frightened in some way. And uh, that's in contrast to a comedy which, in which the, the goal is to make us laugh or a romantic story in which the goal is to get us to feel emotional empathy uh, towards the character. But as we've been discussing, for the monster story to be really successful, we have to be more than frightened. And uh, w we do need to take the monster's point of view to some extent to understand that, you know, we to some extent may have gone through in some kind of situation a similar problem that the monster has. Uh, but, it, it, you know, the, the ratio of sympathy and horror uh, is, is where the, the brilliance of the chef... Uh, to mix metaphors a little bit, r resides, m meaning whether it's the filmmaker, the storyteller, whatever. How sympathetic we want to make our monsters, th that determines how successful the monster will be. The easy part is making the monster repulsive and frightening. The difficult part is mixing in that sympathy level. Some monsters can be funny. Uh, for instance, the monsters. You have this family of monsters who go through situations that some families would be able to relate to. And more recently, there's Shrek, who is more of a comic character, who is also a monster. So are we supposed to be surprised when monsters are funny? No, because we shouldn't be surprised, because that's just another dimension to our whole uh, experience with monsters. And th there is something about the, the human sense of humor which uh, makes us laugh at things which, if you look at objectively, are not laughable. But the other aspect, uh, you know, you mentioned the monsters and our identifying with them. There are all kinds of interesting uh, examples. If you think about The Sopranos, even, and you know, I organized a conference at Fordham University a few years ago about The Sopranos. Uh, on the one hand, Tony Soprano is a murderer. You know, that, the, that's what he does. You know, but on the other hand, we somehow relate to him, and we can even laugh at how he relates to his family and the problems he and his wife Carmela have with their kids. Uh, and, and so that also gets at the fact that it's not a simple either-or dichotomy. It's a mixture. Well, and the fact that we c can laugh at monsters tells you that this is a genre that is recognizable. It's established. Because otherwise, we wouldn't recognize the parody. We wouldn't know that we were supposed to laugh. Um, so we know this is what a monster is supposed to look like. This is what's supposed to be scary about a monster. And in laughing at them, we can laugh at our reasons for the monster, why it is we, we're drawn to them, why it is that we're afraid of them. Uh, and it, it sort of undercuts the, the monster itself and, and reflects on us and our need for them and desire for them. There's an old Twilight Zone episode called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. It's about 
the residents of Maple Street. They're told the monsters are going to come to their street. And through hearing that news, we as the audience come to realize that the residents themselves are the monsters. Yeah, well, I mean, this is that's one of the best Twilight Zone episodes. And, you know, there's another one that also comes to mind about a woman who's getting some kind of plastic surgery because she has a horrible face. And at the very, very end, the, the we find out the surgery has failed, so she's going to have to go off somewhere. And then the camera pans, and we see the doctors, and they have, like, these horrible, ugly faces. And the camera goes back, you know, to the woman, and she she's beautiful. It's the same kind of theme, and Rod Serling really had a, a sense of that. You know, and of course, uh, the, 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 this gets to the classic cliche, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, uh, but most things when they're cliches became that way because there's a lot of truth in them. That's why people kept talking about them. So yes, The Monsters Are Do on Maple Street is, is brilliant because uh, it, it shows that uh, um, a, a monster for someone might be a normal person. There's another great Twilight Zone example of that about a, a, an old woman who's like, she, she's like tormented by these bugs or something in her attic and she's like constantly trying to stomp them out. We really have great sympathy for her until the very, very, very end, the very last scene, the camera zooms in and guess who those little bugs are? Well, they're, they're astronauts. This is like a ship from Earth. This is like some giant woman on, a, on another planet. But that theme, it comes up over and over and over again, that uh, w- who is the monster and who is the normal person? And when you f- flip that back and forth, it makes for a great story. Monsters in literature and movies are fictional, but who are the real-life monsters in our society? Well, I would argue that that all monsters are fictional to an extent. Um, and so the qu- answer to that question, who are the real monsters, is going to depend on who you ask and at what time. It's going to be a very different answer in the 1950s than it is today. You know, at one time, miscegenation is going to be the monster. At another time, might be hom- homosexuality. At another time, it could be, you know, Republicans, and for another person, Democrats. It depends on who's speaking. I, I, I did a, a, an assignment in, in one of my classes with uh, students dealing with a story called Bisclabre. It's a medieval story by Marie de France about a, a, a man who's a werewolf. And he's gone three days of the week, and his wife doesn't know where he is. She doesn't know about this. Uh, she, of course, we have unknown here. We have a gap. She fills it in. Uh, with the monster that she would assign, which is adultery. Oh, he must have another lover. So he finally confesses that, no, he's a a werewolf. And she, in response, because all she knows of werewolves is that they're beasts that eat people, so she finds a way to consign him to, to his werewolf state, to his wolf state, by taking away his clothing. And later on, she's attacked by the wolf, and her nose is cut off, and she's tortured to find out what's going on. And everyone responds to this story with sympathy for the wolf. Uh, so I assigned my students, I said, okay, if, if a wolf in the Middle Ages could represent things like incest and cannibalism um, and heresy, what is the monster that would be so bad today that you would actually have sympathy with the wife? And I gave them a list of things and let them add to the list. And it was things like um, pedophilia and uh, homosexuality, and um, uh, someone who has AIDS, or someone who has a mental illness, and didn't tell the person that they're with. You know, would you think that this is such a bad thing that you would have sympathy for kicking them out? And um, it was really surprising 
because you get a sense of what is a monster to the students, what is a monster to each individual based on what they have sympathy with and what they don't have sympathy with. And it, it's really fascinating. Every single person will define wh what the real monster is in a very different way. Let me just uh, chime in here about something slightly different. Uh, I don't know when this is going to be broadcast, but we're obviously close to Halloween. Uh, you know, you can't really talk about monsters without talking about Halloween. I, 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 I'll, I'll like publicly confess, this might be like the first time, I've n I never liked Halloween. You know, I didn't particularly like it as a kid. I, I couldn't stand it as a parent because I had to then basically, we had to tell our kids, you know, be very careful. We would go with them, but we'd have to carefully examine all the candy that was given to them. But that aside, what Halloween uh, does is it reduces monsters to their most ridiculous, lowest denominator, where they're almost robbed of any uh, significance uh, because everyone just puts on a costume and goes around for one night and looks like someone. And I, and I think that it, the one good thing about that is it shows the importance of monsters when they're not trivialized like that. Now, you know, I hate to say that because I'm sure like every kid in the country who's listening to this will, will think that I'm a monster. But, uh, but uh, I do think that monsters uh, play an important role, and you know, we, we've been talking about this in our adult uh, schemas as, as well as uh, for children for the reasons we've been talking about. Just getting a little bit more specific, people like uh, Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, terrorists, drug dealers, are these our monsters? Are these our dragons from medieval times? Uh, you know, they're real. They're in our society. And we definitely do set up a sense of us versus them, a sense of other. Would that mean that they are monsters? Well, it's a semantic issue. Obviously, biologically, they're not monsters. In other words, they're human beings who are doing horrible things. So the real question is, in some sense, does it make sense to call any real human being a monster? Does it help us in any way understand, combat that? I would say probably not, because what the label monster does is it separates that human being, however horrendous the actions of that human being, however lacking of a soul that human being might have in the colloquial sense. By labeling that human being a monster, it, it pushes the human being further away from us. And then, you know, as I said earlier, the only real option we have is to destroy it. Growing up, were either of you afraid of a particular monster or a certain mm -hmm. type of monster? I, I, you know, it just goes to show you probably how, uh, you know, what a strange kid I was. I was never afraid of monsters when I was a kid. I actually used to hope that I could meet a monster. I thought it would be interesting, you know, to have a conversation with a monster. I guess this, this is a monster who has enough humanity that you could have a conversation. Uh, and the other monsters, you know, like the fire-breathing dragons and, you know, Godzilla and the blob, which was like, you know, this huge, big, amoebic thing, that was a pretty popular movie in the mid-1950s. Those were so ridiculous. Uh, there were so much cartoon-like characters that I can't say I was really at all afraid of them. I, you know, And this gets into an interesting point that we haven't mentioned. This gets back to uh, the poet Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge uh, and his uh, really brilliant observation in his Biographia Literaria. Way, way back, I think he wrote this in the 1830s, 
that in order for a poem to be successful, the reader must willingly suspend his or her disbelief. And if you think about that phrase, willing suspension of disbelief, in other words, it's a logical decision that we make to say, okay, I'm not going to doubt that, even though we know logically that that's not the case. So, at least for me, my interactions with monsters were usually willing suspensions of disbelief. I, I was not really afraid because I knew that they weren't real, but I was able to play along with it and sort of in a pseudo way feel frightened, and that's what made it interesting. You know, I never was able to to make that willing suspension of disbelief. <laughs> I I I was always much more afraid of of the realistic things. So, um, I guess the closest I ever came was as a really young child. I was terrified to sleep facing a window because I was sure that some strange boogeyman was going to climb up a ladder, come in through the window, and attack me. So I thought if I slept, you know, not looking at the window, he he wouldn't be able to see me, and that sort of childish view of the world. But that's that was really the closest I came to believing in a monster. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything either of you would like to add that we didn't touch upon? I just wanted to say that I love Halloween. <laughs> 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 it's, okay. it's actually my favorite holiday. Um, and partly because of the hybridity of monsters that we're talking about, um, monsters aren't just about our fears, they're also about our desires. Uh, and... Um, you know, so many holidays are divisive. You know, if you're Christian, you love the Christian holidays. If you're Jewish, you love the Jewish holidays. But you can so easily feel left out or make others feel left out. And then then you have Halloween. And even though it has roots in, in Catholic um, celebration, it has become so divorced from that in the United States that it's taken on its own life. And I think there's just something wonderful about the idea that People can put on costumes, ring on a stranger's doorbell, and get candy. Well, I think that's, those are very good points, and I don't disagree with them at all. I think those are important points. My only problem is, is candy is no good for you. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Fordham professors Rebecca June and Paul Levinson. Dr. Levinson's novel, The Silk Code, is out in a new author's cut Kindle edition. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.